0: Andrew Winchester, here with Autumn Privett, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or by women. And today, we're talking to T. Kira Madden, the author of Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls, which is out now
1: from Bloomsbury. I'm so excited to talk to Kira about this book. <laughs>
0: yes, uh, we have been talking about it nonstop, which I believe is the story of our lives,
1: <laughs> Possibly. Well, and when I got my copy of the book, I just pet it for the first like two minutes <laughs> because it's so pretty, like, oh my goodness, and we're gonna be sure to link to the designer of the book on our show notes and on social media so you can check out the artist, but oh, man, this book, man, and it sparkles it sparkles, and I'm not a sparkle person, but something about this book just makes me happy. I don't it know makes me it a sparkle is. person, right. <laughs> But the
0: writer of this book is a photographer, an amateur magician. She is the founding editor-in-chief of No Tokens and facilitates writing workshops for homeless and formerly incarcerated individuals. And she also teaches at Sarah Lawrence College uh, in New York. So she does all of the things. So she's basically the coolest person on the planet. (laughs) She would definitely be in the running, for sure. (laughs) So we could keep telling you about Kira, but we will let her do that. So without further ado, here's our conversation with T. Kira Madden. Well, we're so excited to have you here, Kira, on the podcast. So welcome. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you.
1: So Kendra has known about this book for a very long time. She's been telling me for maybe years about it. And so I was really excited to finally read it. And it definitely lived up to her hype. So,
2: so delighted
1: to hear that.
0: <laughs> I feel like the depth of my fandom has just been revealed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get too far ahead or too sidetracked, um For our listeners who aren't familiar with your book yet, could you tell them a little bit about Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls? Sure. It's um, it's kind of a a funky
2: memoir, which almost feels like essays uh, a little scattered that make up my life so far. It is not quite linear. It's not quite memoir, not quite essay, although marketers would not like me saying that. Um, But it covers my time growing up in Boca Raton, Florida, in a privileged Jewish family as a half Asian Hawaiian uh, gay kind of coming of age person in a very strange environment. And it covers my time as a kid, as a teenager, and then more kind of present day action now. If I could add, it's a it's a really difficult book to summarize. That's always been kind of the issue with this book. In my very first meetings when the book was out for submission, and I met with Bloomsbury, um, my editor, Callie Garnett, she, you know, everybody, everybody at Bloomsbury was in the room. It was a really big meeting, but she said, I told everybody here, I don't know how to describe this book. I'm not really sure what it's about, but you just have to read it because... There's just an experience and a mood to it, and you just have to trust me. And since then, we've tried to kind of focus the book a little bit more, and I do think that's there. But it is a difficult book to summarize. <laughs> so,
0: well, I remember you talking about this book and how you know you got your MFA in fiction, I believe, and that you. We're at a writing retreat, and you just started writing these essays that involved your family and your and your life, and how that kind of expanded. Uh, what really drew you to turning those essays into a full length book?
2: You know, it. I keep saying it feels really like an accidental book. I was writing those essays at the McDowell Colony because. I just couldn't focus on my novel. I couldn't focus on stories. I couldn't focus on my novel. And it was just my way of occupying myself and trying to grieve. I went to the uh, residency. It was really just maybe two months after my father had passed away. And I went under the, my application was for my novel. And that's what I had been working on. And I got there and, you know, I'm in the beginning of that kind of grief, fugue, really hazy place. And I just couldn't focus on this novel about lesbians in the South. And I just occupied myself by working out some things with my father and some questions I still had. And then while I was at that residency, um, Chad from the essay, The Fields of Love reached out to me. And so I tried to work through that memory and those experiences as well on the page And it really felt accidental that I I just left with maybe 100 pages of these kind of bursts from my life. They weren't really organized essays. certainly wasn't an organized project. But just these kind of moody bursts from different years of my life and mostly centered on different questions that I had after losing my father. And it just so happened that the agent I was talking to, I told her, you know, I didn't finish the novel. I wrote these pages instead. And she said, I'm not really interested in whatever this project is, but I do feel like it is a project and you should pursue it with somebody else. So I queried out to different agents and that book was just picked up before the novel was. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it really was an accident. And my agent, uh, Jin Ah, was the one who kind of saw the whole vision of what the book was before I could. And she said, this is a book. This is a memoir. We just have to find a shape and we have to kind of grow it and build it uh, into something a little more substantial. Because at that time, it was still just those 100 to 120 pages of really short bursts. And then we kind of developed longer pieces. And since then, for the past few years, just been writing pieces and taking pieces out and writing pieces and taking them out to see what stuck and what made the most sense for this narrative, whatever this narrative is.
1: The structure was something that I really enjoyed because I think when I know when I think of the word memoir, like in quotes, you know, I think of something that's very like weirdly complete, you know, like who could possibly remember like that much about someone's life or about your own life? And so like the little bursts as you describe them, I felt really mirrored even how I think about my childhood. You know, there's huge gaps in time and, you know, between these events. But so you have these organized into like three major acts. Like how did you decide to organize them and arrange them in that format? I actually tried several
2: different structures, which was really helpful for the writing and generative process of the book. And I would recommend it to other writers. Um, I think it was my, my agent who suggested like try breaking it down into thematic sections. So I had a family section, I had, you know, sex, I had friends, I had race, and I tried to build out those sections of the kind of thematic threads that were that were coming through for me as I was working with the book. Tried to even out the sections so that there wasn't any weightiness in a certain area, and then another section might feel a little flimsy. So I tried to even them all out, then choose the best ones from each, and then... That was the structure I was looking at for a while, and it was really random, um, and I was trying to come up with titles for each thematic section. And then I realized because the the pieces are all different lengths and different styles, and even in some cases different points of view, because I use the second person for the fields of love, it made sense to me to try to build a little more of a linear narrative just for a reader to have a little more to grasp onto, um, to find their grounding a little bit more. I was always taught in school to choose your abstractions wisely. So if I'm jumping around with point of view and I'm jumping around with theme and style, then I can have a little more of a timeline for a reader to kind of just kind of walk through. So when I found that linear map of the book it seemed natural to break it into childhood and then teenage years and then adulthood. And then each section kind of found its own mood and style and voice and personality really. Um, And then I just kind of tried to develop all three of those. And it was actually the same time Moonlight came out too, which I love Moonlight. And I went to see that and I thought, oh yeah, that's, that's what I'm doing, and that's what this movie is doing. You know, a lot better. But there's something really powerful about that kind of classic three act structure for me that really worked in that film, and I hope works in the book.
0: Yeah, I I really love the structure, especially, and I feel like it also gives um, it builds a foundation, and you can build up from there. And so by the time that you go. To the point, place where you're telling us a little bit about your mom's past, we understand where that was past was going to meet up with the present, if that makes sense. I I love structure in books. I'm sure people listening to the podcast are so tired of me talking about structure. <laughs> oh, it's
2: my favorite
0: thing to talk about. It, it it is also my favorite. Like the book needs a skeleton. It needs a skeleton.
2: I would give it a scaffolding. You have scaffolding, and then. Your job as artist or writer is just to, I like to imagine throwing different pieces of fabric or cloth or something over the scaffolding to, to give it color and life. But you have to have that, that structure beneath it. Um, and also reading other books who were, you know, Chronology of Water by Lydia Yuknovich was a really important book for me. Because I didn't, I didn't know what to make of that as memoir because it's so all over the place and it's not linear and different voices, different sections, different lengths to each one, some being one page and some being lengthy. And hearing Lydia talk about that book of how, you know, experience and grief for her could not possibly be linear, that it had to be shattered and fractured and understanding how the form and content were playing with one another and how there's friction there as well that was really important for me and kind of gave me permission um to play with more fractures I guess
1: so the title of your book is really intriguing um and it was one of the apart from the beautiful cover um it was one of the things that really drew me in um could you talk a little bit about how you landed on that as the title? Sure.
2: so the title of the book in my mind and my heart was always the Rat's Mouth, which is the translation of Boca Raton, which is where I'm from. And I just, I just really liked the grit and the teeth of that title, and and the irony that this like really vain, kind of strange town is called the Rat's Mouth. Um, so that was that was the idea. Um, my my agent hated it. <laughs> um, from day one. And we brought it to Bloomsbury and my editor, Callie Garnett had a really great point. She said, um, that title feels more like a a punchline that closes down and we need to find something that opens instead of closing. Mm -hmm. And that really resonated with me. So we also worked with the title, um, tell the women I'm lonely, which is the title of the last section. And that was also a title I really loved. Um, for multiple reasons and it's still my editor felt skewed a little too sad or a little too negative and everyone kept clinging to long Live the tribe of fatherless girls um, for their reasoning was that it feels a little more triumphant it has more spirit to it and I fought it I fought it for so long I said, it's too long no one will remember this title I just didn't think it was going to work And in the end, uh, they won that battle. And (laughs) I'm so glad they did. And I emailed my editor right away. I'm like, you were right. People are finding this book through that title because they feel part of that tribe. And something about it resonates with people. And something about it, people are remembering it. And so I'm really grateful to have been wrong (laughs) on that title. I can't imagine it as, as another book with a different title now. It just feels like it's always been Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls. I remember you
0: talking about the title in particular and how, you know, you describing why you love The Rat's Mouth originally and, like, how that really, I feel like, encapsulates a a lot of the particulars of the book and of the town that you grew up in. But I can see how, like, the focus of Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls is... The girls as opposed to the town?
2: Yeah, it's been interesting for for me to learn writing memoir, um, specifically in publishing memoir, how to separate myself from the book, because it is memoir. So it feels like, well, this book has to be me. So the rat's mouth is a much more me title. The cover is, does not feel like me to Kira as a person. But understanding that long with the tribe of fatherless girls and the cover feel like the book and that's more important and that's much better. And that there are so many versions of me in that book that it doesn't have to match me now. So I think that was the kind of trouble with the title, but it does, it does really resonate for the person or the people I have been. Um, and the person I was in that specific essay, which isn't necessarily me now.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But I like that about it.
1: Yeah, because in your memoir, you talk about a lot of, I guess, maybe heavy or serious topics. You know, you talk about addiction and, you know, your parents' relationship and things like that. Um, so I like thinking about the title as this triumphant thing. It does definitely does feel hopeful. But in your writing process, like, how did you kind of balance writing about, you know, yourself and then also, like, white-collar crime and addiction and your parents' relationship?
2: I mean, all of those elements, all of those events are what make up the self for me. I I guess if I were a better writer, I'd have gone in with more of a plan of who I wanted to be in the book and how I wanted to create that person. But instead, it is this—I feel like the the final project of the book really is— true to how I wrote it which is this really scattershot strange kind of memory loop I was caught in for years and understanding myself then meant understanding more about my father and then meant more about understanding my mother and you know the crime and the money and the violence and addiction that's who they were and therefore who I am because that's my world they were my world
0: when I finished the book I was You know, I just sat there. I mean, it was like 6 a.m. in the morning. But I just sat there and thought about how we, our personhood, our identity, we often carry with us the weight of our parents' identity, of who they are, and how that passes from generations. And there's a, I don't want to give any spoilers to your memoir, but there's a photo near the end that I just kept thinking about um, of you and some of your, two of your other family members and how that relates to the title and how these women of different generations come together.
2: I'm really glad you felt that way. In the beginning when I started writing this project, whatever it was, I really felt that it was just going to be about my father. Um, Before it was even the rat's mouth in my mind, I was thinking it would be called Madman because that was his nickname. And I just after his death was kind of working through these questions and sketches I had of him and understanding him. And my first conversation with my mother and my brothers was about exactly that. Like, how would you feel about me writing a book about dad? Do you feel I have the right to that story? And kind of what I was just trying to articulate is the more I got to understand him through those sections, inevitably the more I got to understand my mother and then inevitably, inevitably, the more I got to understand their world and their lives and their histories, and the book just kept growing. So I think it's interesting that it begun about him, but in the end, I'm glad you, I'm glad the photo and that section resonated with you, because in the, the end, I actually think the book is about women. It's not about my father. It's about the perseverance of women and, and generational joy and generational trauma through women.
1: And I definitely felt that, um, and I, too, don't want to give away spoilers, but, yeah, I feel like the ending was just such, like, this beautiful, I don't know, it just made me really happy (laughs) just to kind of see how it all turned out. Um, But you brought up an interesting point about talking to your brothers about, and your mom about writing this book. I mean, writing a memoir, especially when um, you're talking about your family members. How did you go about, like, getting permissions or, you know, asking to tell their parts of the story as well?
2: It was a complicated process. I've I've been pretty lucky, though, I must say. It's been a scary, long, complicated process. And I take my job as a writer and my new job as a nonfiction writer very seriously. And I've tried to really honor each person in my family and really kind of break down what matters to me with each person in the book, understanding who I want to ask for permission, for example, versus who I want to, to just show the, the piece to and say, you know, what do you think of this? Do you think I, I've done right by you? And asking those questions rather than can I write about this or not? Because that's dangerous territory. Um, if it's your experience and it's something you want to do and something you want to write, I do feel like you you own that experience and that is yours to write. So, Early on, I learned not to ask permission if I didn't mean it. And I think it was my therapist who said, well, what happens if they say no? Does that mean you stop writing it or you cut it? And I thought, no, of course not. (laughs) So I stopped asking with the exception of my mother and my brothers. Um, If they didn't want me to write something or include something, I wasn't going to include it. They're too important to me and it it just wasn't worth it. Um, But I was really lucky that... They have been very supportive and understanding and patient, Uh, especially my mother, who's read every draft from the very beginning pages to where it is now. She's read it so many times. And even the most difficult parts, I would ask her very frankly, would you like me to cut this or change this? And she'd think about it and she would say, no, it's your experience and it needs to be in there and it feels true. So I, I just feel very fortunate that they've been so open-minded and in many cases, the asking is scarier than the reading of it because I was hoping that I could render things through writing that I wouldn't necessarily be able to articulate um, in the ask. So by showing it to them after, after writing it and getting their reactions then I think makes it a little, a little better <laughs> on my part at least. And
0: we'll be back with more of our interview with T. Kira Madden after a word from our sponsor. This episode of Reading Women is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The books we read introduce us to new subjects, fresh perspectives that we want to know more about, which is why we love having The Great Courses Plus and want you to check it out too. With this streaming learning service, we are learning from knowledgeable and passionate experts about virtually anything that interests us, from literature to writing, cooking, philosophy, history, and so much more, with the flexibility to watch videos or listen along with the Great Courses Plus app.
1: And one of the courses that we've been enjoying is called Heroes and Legends, the Most Influential Characters in Literature. This course is a fascinating look at the power of great literary heroes and how they reflect the values and cultural changes during their times. And there's a wide range of characters covered in this 24 lecture series, ranging from Guinevere to the wife of Bath, to Celie in the color purple, to Lisbeth Salander in the girl with the dragon tattoo. So there's a wide range of really great lectures that's some really awesome characters in classic literature. To
0: help you get started, we've arranged a special limited time offer for our listeners. Enjoy a
1: full month of The Great Courses Plus for free. So to start your free month, sign up through our special URL at thegreatcoursesplus.com readingwomen. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com readingwomen.
0: And all of this information will be linked in our show notes. And thanks so much again to The Great Courses Plus for sponsoring this episode of Reading Women. You mentioned that you went to Kauai to research some of your family's past. Did you do any other research uh, during this process?
2: I, with that final section specifically, with my aunt and my grandmother and my cousin and my mother, it was extensive phone interviews, which seemed more, just a little more pleasant and easy than doing it in person. Um, So we just talked on the phone for hours and hours and hours and I took notes and got to see how my notes matched up with each person and also how they completely conflicted, which in the end, I think the book is so much about that, about our revisions of history and our revisions of memory and how we can't actually ever get it right um, as much as we try that we each have our own stories. (laughs) So, yeah, the most of my research was in that final section Uh, There were certainly other sections like the fields of love, and that's kind of within the essay itself is me having conversations with those people. So I did reach out to many former friends to have conversations and ask them about experiences and how they remember it. And then other sections, I didn't reach out to those people because I knew their reaction would not be great. And they are no longer in my life, mostly for a reason. So trying to distinguish between those. It, it was really tricky. It's really tricky to navigate feeling like you owe something to people if you're writing about them and how much do you owe them? How much of yourself and of the work do you give to them? How much power do you hand over? There's a questions I still have.
0: And I think you can, like you said, see that throughout the book and the conversations that you've had. And one of the things I wanted to ask you is, what you owe yourself. One of the main themes of your book is how you came to terms with your own sexuality. And, you know, every queer person's journey and, you know, coming to terms with that is different. And I'm sure you've read lots of queer memoirs and how their journeys went. But when you went to write it, you write with such clarity now, but I'm sure your emotions were all over the place at the time. So when it came to telling this part of the story. uh, What was your approach and what did you feel like you owed yourself to um, share with readers?
2: It's interesting because I think people pick up this book by reading The Jacket or knowing me now as a lesbian writer. And it's a queer writer on The Jacket and in the book synopsis. And I think they're expecting it to be very queer from the first page to the last. Um, But I am proud of the fact that I do feel my my queerness, my gayness is kind of shadowed in the book until it becomes a little more obvious to a reader. And that feels true to how I experienced that in my life. Like there are moments and memories. And again, these kind of shadow prints of, of gayness, but I didn't understand it at that time in my life. I always say, I knew I was gay, but I didn't understand it. And so I I tried to be really true to that in the book so that I'm not spelling anything out you know I saw these two women kiss and that's when I knew that something was different about me you know it would be a very different book if that was the narration instead I just have to have again these bursts of images and memories and then the reader can kind of look over my head and make sense of what I couldn't make sense of until later of course when I have my first girlfriend and experience so I tried to I tried to honor that process, that very slow coming out and coming to understanding and becoming process of who I am in multiple ways, but especially with being gay, that it it wasn't clear to me till much later. And I hope that comes across. And I felt like sometimes
0: the strategy is taken where it's, it is all about someone's, you know, experience and coming out, story and different things. While well, your memoir was more you as a whole person and you as a horsewoman, as a, as a daughter, you know, as, you know, someone who's from Florida and you had all these different facets. And while queerness is a very important part of who you are, that's not just who you are. You're also all of these other things as well. And it just created like a well-roundedness you know, I saw a comment the other day online and someone was saying, how on earth do people not know that they are queer before, you know, by the time they hit puberty, like at this day and age, like we should, you know, all know these things and everyone's experience is different. And we're not all from like, you know, these urban communities where you can ask questions and different things. Um, and so were you well aware that you were writing in a sense that you discovered, you know, your sexuality, you know, in your like 20s rather than you always knew in that sense?
2: I think that there's an essay in the book called Another Word for Creep. And that feels really true to my experience coming out in that as I was experiencing my first relationship, which also felt a bit accidental because I thought this person was my friend And she wanted this relationship to be a little more. And of course, this was like very exciting but confusing for me. But as I was in this relationship, I was kind of thinking back to so many memories in my life where it should have clicked into place. It should have made sense, but it hadn't. And there's a line in that essay, I think, that it's not that I never thought about it. I just didn't have the context. And that still feels really true to me, that I never... Really knew a butch woman until I moved to New York City. There was one, one girl who came out in all of middle school and high school. My whole experience in school in Boca Raton, Florida. She came out as as gay. She was bullied and abused so badly uh, that she had to switch schools immediately after. And that was my one experience seeing that happen. I thought that's that couldn't be me. That's not my life. I wouldn't be willing to sacrifice my. My safety in my life or something like that. And I just, I just didn't understand. I didn't have those role models. I didn't have those, those obvious people, persons of desire, um, except my obsession with Hanson and Leonardo DiCaprio, which I know now are just my type. <laughs> <laughs> um, But until I moved to New York and and met gay people and met butches and and trans people, and I didn't understand, I just didn't know. Until later, piecing together all those steps that I I did take that I hadn't realized were part of that
1: becoming. Well, I think what you described is something that your memoir does really well because I felt like as I was reading I was coming to these same realizations with you. It wasn't like, I don't know, it just felt very natural like how you unfolded that story, and so then, when it you know you finally like mention explicitly like your f- first relationship with your first girlfriend, like it's like, oh of course, like that makes sense now kind of a thing, um, but that like slow progression was I thought was really sounds very true to your own experience as well,
2: very much so. I guess I won't give a spoiler for the end of that essay, but that still wasn't it for me because that relationship failed. That's not much of a spoiler. <laughs> we can almost assume <laughs> that relationship will fail. But that <laughs> relationship failed so badly and my heart was really broken. And because of that, I, I just thought, okay, that was the college experiment. That didn't work. So let's try this again. <laughs> So that wasn't even where I really understood or knew either. I had a better understanding and that's when denial began. Before that, it wasn't denial necessarily. It just wasn't a a complex understanding of who I was.
1: Well, I'm sure Kendra and I could ask you a lot more questions about your book, but we don't want to give away spoilers at this point. But before we let you go, we wanted to ask you, we've mentioned it a lot in this interview so far, all the 90s references in this book and Kendra and I especially were just like nerding out over that. What were some of the your favorite things from the 90s that you didn't get to include in this memoir? Oh, that's a good question.
2: Um I did I did love Furbies. I did have an obsession with uh Moon Shoes. Do you remember those? Oh yeah. They had the giant rubber bands, and there were just these shoes with rubber bands, and you would bounce around as if you were hopping around the moon, but it wasn't at all like that. Um, and I would get severely injured every time I would wear them, but something about it felt really kind of magic to me, and I'd close my eyes and just kind of hop around everywhere in the moon shoes, and they didn't make it in. <laughs> um, I wish I got more into 90s icons and my love of Siegfried and Roy, which barely makes the cut.
1: Oh, there are so many things. (laughs) Did you have a Tamagotchi too, I assume?
2: Of course.
1: Oh, yes. I love
2: my Tamagotchi. Yes. I even got the app a couple of years ago. I was trying to recreate (laughs) that magic and it it wasn't the same. It's just not the same. Not the same.
0: Yeah, I was waiting for like Neopets to show up, um, especially when you mentioned limited two. Oh, yep, yep, yep.
2: I mean, yeah, there's more style and fashion I could have gotten there.
0: Well, the the other thing we always like to ask our guests is, what are some uh, other women writers that you would recommend?
2: <sighs> you know, this is the question that always makes me the most nervous because I have this like vast library and knowledge of books. But then when it comes down to narrowing it for an answer, it seems so scary. I, I love the work of Lydia Ivnovich so much. Um, I love the work of Linda Berry. She's a graphic novelist and cartoonist. And she's really the person who always just opens up anything that feels locked. And I recommend her for anyone. If you're a visual artist, uh, if you make sculptures, if you are a writer, um, so many of her books are kind of instructional in how to remember play as you're working. She's just incredible. Esme Wang, uh, I love her work as well. I'm so excited to read her new book. I love the work of Jakira Diaz. Uh, She has her first forthcoming book coming out uh, later this year called Ordinary Girls, which is also a South Florida queer memoir. And she's fantastic. Any essay she publishes, I just kind of race to it. Kristen Arnett as well. I I love her work as a, a queer writer. Her nonfiction and her fiction, they both just, I think she's incredible and incredibly funny and incredibly moving. She like really walks that that delicate line between the two and makes it happen and makes me feel so many things. So I'm crazy about her. Well, well I know you love Grace Paley. So
0: I yes. I yeah, I've, yes. I've never read her. Where would you recommend starting? I know. Anywhere.
2: <laughs> I have Grace Paley's name tattooed on my bicep, but it's the coolest thing about me. It's much cooler. It's like
0: a, a walking I've, book recommendation. <laughs>
2: You can start anywhere with Grace Paley. Uh, Enormous changes at the last minute, I would say. Or, Or I could just give you a list of specific stories. I think looking at... Everybody goes to Wants is maybe her most famous story. And Wants is incredible, and it has one of my favorite moments in literature. But I think looking at the structure of her story called Mother and her story called Living, which are both very short pieces, mother, maybe two pages living, maybe three structurally. She has a way of giving a reader information and then moving past it through time and then returning to it in a way. So by the end, that information has a completely new weight and therefore colors the piece completely differently. And it's just the most incredible magic trick that I could never pull off um, but it's something I study deeply in, in those two pieces specifically of how do you do that in in such little space? How do you kind of travel and punctuate each paragraph just so, so that that information comes back and it's completely new? So I admire her for so many reasons, for her activism, for her sentences, for her language, but structurally um, and the way she handles time is, I think, the most impressive. So Kendra, I think you might be interested <laughs> in that. But start anywhere with her, really. Oh, well, I will definitely have
0: to pick up a copy of something, whatever I find in my next like library sale run. Oh, I just added a bunch of stuff to Goodreads, <laughs> so you know,
2: See the whole collected
0: works. Oh, dive in. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when Autumn was reading Flannery O'Connor; it was like this tome that she was lugging around everywhere, and like, yep, <laughs> yep, mm-hmm. <laughs> all four inches. <laughs> But well, thank you so much for talking about your memoir with us today and sharing your story. And uh, we greatly appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much. This has been lovely. So it was
0: wonderful being able to talk to Kira and I am pretty sure that as soon as short stories was mentioned at the end there, that Autumn you immediately ran to the internet to purchase all the short stories.
1: Oh, as soon as I hang up the call, I bought the complete stories <laughs> of Grace Paley. So you know, so you know, it we're sharing sharing love.
0: So we're also here to promote Paley, Grace Paley, and how amazing she is. And I will be borrowing that as soon as you're done with it. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> Well, we'd like to thank Tkira Madden for talking to us today about her memoir, Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls, which is out now from Bloomsbury. You can find Kira on her website, tkiramadden.com, and on Twitter, TK Madden. And of course, all of Kira's information will be linked in our show notes.
1: We'd also like to say a special thank you to our patrons who support makes this podcast possible. You can find Reading Women at readingwomenpodcast.com and on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. You can find Kendra at Katie Winchester and me at Autumn Privet. As always, thank you all so much for listening and we'll talk to you next time.